Hi, everyone, and welcome to this first Geopolitical Economy Hour. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. Um, every fortnight, we are going to meet to, for an hour to discuss the major developments in the fast-changing geopolitical economy of our 21st century world. We'll discuss international developments. We'll discuss their roots in individual countries and regions. We will try to uncover the reality beneath the usually distorting representation of these developments in the dominant Western media. We plan to discuss many subjects, inflation, oil prices, de-dollarization, the outcome of the war over Ukraine, which is going to determine so many things, the threats the U.S. is making against uh, 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 threats to China that the U.S. is making about Taiwan, China's increasing prom increasingly prominent role in the world, how its Belt and Road Initiative is going to reshape it, how Western alliances and the Western-dominated world that was built over the past couple of centuries is so rapidly fracturing. We'll discuss financialization, the West's productive decline, many other things. Michael, am I leaving any important things out? Well, we'd uh, uh, been talking about this for many decades. Uh, already in the 1978, I wrote a book, Global Fracture, uh, about how the world was dividing into two uh, uh, parts. Uh, but at that time, other countries are trying to break free uh, so that they could follow their own development. Uh, and today, it, we're, uh, it's the United States that's uh, isolating other countries, uh, not only China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, but now the global south. So the, the United States has ended up isolating itself from the rest. And so uh, what we're going to talk about is how this is not only a geographic uh, split, but it's a split of economic systems and economic philosophy. So we're going to talk about what the characteristics are uh, and the policies that are shaping uh, this new uh, global fracture. Indeed, uh, Michael and our, my collaboration go back a couple of decades. In fact, even before we met, I had read books like Global Fracture, Super Imperialism, etc., which were quite prescient and with which I agreed, you know, contrary to all those people talking about globalization and U.S. hegemony, etc., Michael could see and I also could see the fractures underlying the system. So my own approach has been uh, uh, characterized by such skepticism about, uh, you know, enduring Western dominance, U.S. hegemony, dollar dominance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, after thinking and writing about small bits about it for a couple of decades, I eventually came up with this book, Geopolitical Economy, which from which um, you know Ben has also taken this, um, the title of the Geopolitical Economy uh, report. Uh, with which, of course, we are collaborating. And uh, in geopolitical economy, I question the over dominant cosmopolitan understandings of the world. You know, in globalization discourse, the world is seamlessly united by markets. In American hegemony discourse or hegemony stability theory discourses, the world is united by a single leading power. None of these narratives are really true. And the uh, advance of multipolarity, which I've argued goes back at least to the 1870s, 
continues apace. And of course, today it is in a very rapidly advancing phase and we are looking at some major changes in the world order. So we are going to be discussing all these things. But today for our opening show, what Michael and I thought we would do is, uh, you know, we've told you a little bit about ourselves, but really we would like today to simply introduce the big idea, the big frame that frames our thinking, which is the advance of multipolarity, the the, 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 the difficulty of retaining Western dominance, the difficulty is so great that not only are Western attempts to preserve this dominance futile, but they are even counterproductive attempts to try to retain dominance like the conflict over Ukraine or many other things are actually boomeranging financial sanctions against Russia, etc. They are boomeranging back on the West. So we are basically want to talk about this big idea, the emergence of the multipolar or some might even say a bipolar world order. So, Michael, do you want to start off with some reflections on that? Yes, I think the most obvious uh, driving force uh, that's splitting the world is the U.S. attempt to create a, this unipolar world order uh, under its control of its national security diplomats and its financial interests. And uh, they insist in monopolizing the international financial system so that if countries try to follow a policy that uh, supports their own development, the United States can simply pull the plug and... Uh, uh, block their financial transactions. Uh, the U.S. tries to control the oil trade. Uh, oil has always been, for the last century, a centerpiece uh, of American diplomacy because if the American oil companies, along with uh, uh, British Petroleum and uh, Dutch Shell, uh, can control the oil, then uh, they can turn off the power and the lights uh, and the uh, transportation of uh, any country that is not following the U.S. plans for a world order. Uh, so, uh, and also food. Uh, the United States, uh, from the time that the World Bank was formed, uh, want, has uh, uh, blocked other countries from developing their own food production and has steered them into uh, producing export crops, uh, non-food crops, tropical uh, crops, remaining dependent on the United States uh, for its grain, so the United States can uh, starve them out if they try to go their own way. So the United States' uh, approach to uh, leading the world order is to lead by being the aggression, aggressor, to threaten, uh, uh, to hurt other countries, not by uh, providing mutual gains, not by helping them developing, but saying, if you don't do what we want, we will overthrow you. We'll have a coup d'etat. Uh, we'll do to you what we did uh, uh, with Pinochet in Chile. We'll do to you what we did with uh, Boris Yeltsin in Russia. Uh, we'll interfere. Uh, and this has been easiest of all and probably the most corrupt region of the world, uh, Western Europe, uh, where the United States uh, Treasury officials have told me uh, all they need to do is give little white envelopes uh, filled with uh, dollar bills, and uh, uh, they've been able to control European politics. So uh, you know having the, uh, the United States essentially uh, trying to use its threats, uh, its uh, sanctions, uh, and uh, it believes that it can hurt uh, another country. And behind it all, of course, is the military uh, threat, uh, as we're seeing in Ukraine. But it turns out that there really isn't any military threat by the United States. Not only has uh, it and, and NATO run out of normal military uh, uh, arms, but America really can't uh, mount a land war anymore. There will never be another Vietnam. 
there will never be uh, the United States invading any other country or Europe invading any other country and with, because you'll never get a population willing to be drafted, uh, the anti-war movement. Uh, and uh, without that, America has only one military lever against other countries, the hydrogen bomb. There is nothing in between uh, a targeted assassination attempt and an atom bomb. Uh, so that basically is uh, what has enabled other countries for the first time to uh, break away. And uh, they couldn't do this back in the 1970s uh, when Radica and I were first uh, noticing it, because at that point, uh, Indonesia and uh, the Caribbean and Latin America didn't have the critical mass to go it alone. Well, now they have the critical mass to go it alone. Thanks to China, Russia, Iran, <laughs> India, uh, they're, uh, they're able to go it alone. There's only one part of the world that's not able to go it alone, and that's the United States and Western Europe. They've deindustrialized. They've uh, essentially, uh, uh, ex uh, in their class war against labor, looking for lower priced labor abroad, they've uh, uh, cut their own uh, industrial labor force, uh, but they've also shifted the center of manufacturing, technology, agriculture, everything is shifted to uh, Eurasia uh, and uh, the uh, Southern uh, hemisphere. And the United States turns out to have left itself alone. So the problem that is frustrating American diplomats is how are they going to dominate the world without industrial leadership, with a debt deflation, with a, a debt that's much higher than other countries? How on earth can they leave in a weakening position without even a, any military? That's the problem exactly. that we're trying to solve and that we'll discuss. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Michael, this whole point you're making, which is that the United States' attempt to dominate the world is increasingly failing. The United States turns out to be essentially a giant with clay feet. You know, from the point of view of today, it becomes much more credible to say so. But I've been saying, and I think saying uh, uh, also with the help from a lot of help from Michael's writings and so on, in reality, when people talk about American hegemony, American dominance, American imperialism, etc., what we have to realize is that what we are looking at for you know, what the United States has attempted to do for more than a century is attempt to dominate the world. But this attempt has actually never been successful. So the story that I tell in my geopolitical economy is actually a rather different story, which does not try to deny the the huge extent of the harm the United States has done by its wars, by its economic coercion, by the, its suppression of attempts of countries to develop. It acknowledges that these have all the things have happened. But the key point is the United States has never actually succeeded in exerting its dominance. So what we are looking at today, what we are calling multipolarity, is in fact the the, shows the failure of American attempts to dominate. So what I argue is that the United States ruling elites from the early 20th century have sought, you know, they in the early 20th century, it was very clear to many observers that British dominance over the world economy was weakening. And the United States felt that it was going to be the uh, uh, going to take over the torch, in a sense, from, from Great Britain and be the dominant power in the world. Uh, they knew, of course, even then, it was very clear that they would never be able to match 
the scale of British dominance. They could never acquire an empire, a formal empire of the size that Britain had. Remember, Britain had an empire on which the sun never set. So what they decided to do is um, they decided to instead lower their sights and say, okay, we can't have an empire of this size, but we are going to try to make the dollar the world's money. Uh, the way in which they tried to do so after the First World War and the financial mayhem they caused, etc., is a really interesting story that I've written about, Michael's also written about, and so on. But in after the Second World War, we are told that, you know, the dollar became the world's currency and, and so on. But the fact of the matter was that the first attempt to try to make the dollar, dollar the world's currency fell foul of the very famous Triffin Dilemma, which is to say that since the United States could not export capital, since it had no capacity to do so, Britain could export capital because it had an empire. It had an empire from which it drew surpluses. So the United States had no such empire, no such imperial surpluses. So it, cre it created dollar liquidity by running deficits. And Robert Triffin pointed out, the bigger the deficits, the lower will be the value of the dollar and the lower will be the attractions of the dollar. This logic finally worked itself out and the United States was forced to break the dollar's link with gold because people were ditching the dollar in favor of gold. Countries were ditching dollars in favor of gold, including famous Western allies, European allies, and so on. And since then, what Michael and I actually also argued in a recent paper we did called Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy, um, we argued that since 1971, and by the way, this is also my argument in geopolitical economy, since that time, the dollar has become reliant on a series of financializations or a series of expansions of purely financial activity so that the unattractiveness of the dollar for normal economic uses, trade uses, and so on, is counteracted by vastly expanding the financial demand for the dollar. And that is why this age, the post-71 age of so alleged dollar dominance, in fact, which has been rested on a series of financializations one after another, it has also been an age of recurring financial crises. So what I want to emphasize is that what we are looking at is the result of American attempts to dominate the world, but they are all attempts that have failed. And this is another story which we will tell. Well, it's interesting that when uh, President Biden and the State Department and the media talk about uh, what's happening in the world and they describe policy, they don't talk about anything that Braddock has just said. Uh, and they don't even talk about uh, the fight between unipolar and multipolar world. Uh, uh, President Putin uh, talks about that and Secretary Lav Lavrov talks about that, uh, but not the US. Uh, if you uh, listen to what President Biden and the State Department says, uh, this global fracture is uh, between democracy and autocracy. Uh, that's how they characterize it. Well, by democracy, this is Orwellian doublespeak for a financial oligarchy. Uh, Aristotle, 2,500 years ago, uh, wrote a book on constitutions of Greece and said, uh, all these constitutions call themselves democracies, but they're really oligarchies. And democracy tends to turn into oligarchy. Uh, uh, so uh, by... Uh, uh, by a democracy, that uh, what he, President Biden means is uh, a financial uh, oligarchy in control of a policy. And what he, what Biden means by autocracy is a mixed public-private economy 
with a strong government support for industry, for technological uh, research and development, for rising living standards, and uh, for most of all, for providing basic needs, uh, public health, public education, uh, retirement uh, income, transportation, uh, all subsidized to minimize uh, the cost of living uh, for labor so that the economic surplus can go to upgrade education, uh, uh, improve the productivity of the labor force, and uh, do essentially what China uh, uh, has done uh, and what uh, other countries are doing and what everyone expected industrial capitalism to do uh, in the United States and Europe, but which uh, uh, finance capitalism is, is not doing. So you have to go beyond this uh, rhetoric to say what is really uh, happening uh, to the Americans uh, public spending and monopoly regulation and protection of consumer rights is socialism. Well, it is socialism, and that's why in the United States they've done polls and find that uh, uh, most people prefer the word socialism to capitalism. Uh, and that, so many uh, people in the United States claim uh, to be socialists, but uh, uh, finance capitalism is not socialism. And uh, th this distinction, uh, which Rosa Luxemburg called, the fight between barbarism and civilization, that's really the fight between democracy and uh, uh, autocracy uh, with a different uh, vocabulary. Yeah, you raised so many really interesting points, Michael. Let me just take one or two of them. First of all, you know, uh, the United States claim to lead the a democratic world, to stand for human rights and democracy and so on sounds increasingly hollow and this is also really interesting to reflect on why because the policies that the united states has had to follow in order to exert dollar dominance in order to create the financializations on which dollar dominance rests have tended to undermine the united states productive economy they have tended to divide society because they have created ever, I mean, astronomical levels of inequality in the United States and other countries that follow that sort of policy paradigm. And as a consequence, they have essentially created the present political breakdown that we witness in the United States, where uh, a, a character like Trump can get elected president. And then when Biden is elected, he must more or less continue Trump's policy. So you're looking at a serious breakdown uh, in, in a breakdown of democracy in Western countries themselves. So, um, so, so that's one thing. But there's another thing, you know, that Michael said that I also wanted to pick up on because, you know, we, this is going to be a show about world affairs. And, and our, it's interesting to explain to you a little bit about how our approach to world affairs differs from the ones that you normally see. So in the study of international relations, you know, some people take a liberal point of view, which is essentially what I was earlier criticizing, you know, the globalization, U.S. hegemony, cosmopolitan views of the world economy, in which the world economy is seamlessly united. Nations don't matter. Nation states have become irrelevant, etc., etc. Um, so you can take that point of view or you can take a so-called realist point of view in which all nations are out to 
essentially do down other nations. But in reality, the point of view that we take comes from a very strong tradition of critical thinking that goes back to Marx and Engels, but has continued and developed uh, in, a, in a big way since then, which is to understand world affairs as the contest between imperialism and anti-imperialism. Trotsky used to call this uneven and combined development. Uh, that is to say, the countries that are already uh, developed, the imperialist countries, want to retain the uneven configuration of development in the world, with some countries being developed, other countries less so. But the ones who are less developed, the ones who are left behind, contest this by promoting their own development through policies that are designed to improve their productive capacities and so on. So what Michael is trying to say when he says that the United States has tried to always um, prevent development is basically, you know, for all the talk of Western countries trying to help the development of third world countries, in reality, when third world countries develop in the only way they can, which is by focusing on productive activity, controlling trade and financial flows and so on, as all successful developers have done it, including the United States in its own time. When they try to do this, the United States tries to force them open. You know, we uh, they talk about a lot about free markets, free trade, openness. What does this openness really mean? It means that countries should lay, lay themselves open to being dominated by, penetrated by Western capital, Western corporations, and be open to supplying cheaply what the West needs, namely commodities, namely labor, low-cost goods, etc., etc. So this is really a contest of anti-imperialism and imperialism in which today the crux of multipolarity is that the forces of anti-imperialism are winning. Well, what Radica said that is most uh, uh, radical uh, is that America really trying to stop the development of other countries. Well, uh, it, this may seem uh, surprising to uh, uh, some people, not uh, listeners to this show, but uh, those very words are, were set into stone in the America's National Security Report, uh, saying that uh, uh, any other country's development to the point where it is independent of the United States is a threat to the United States. And the reason that China is the number one opponent and rival uh, a systemic rival, as they put it, to the United States is that it is developing. And uh, the United States really is against any development except that which American financial interests can control and receive uh, the uh, rental uh, earnings and the profits from turning this development into uh, a U.S. monopoly. Uh, so I guess what uh, is going to be really uh, unfolding in the uh, this show and the futures is uh, we know the aim of other countries is to develop we know what they want to do how are they going to actually implement this uh, in policies uh, well uh, radica mentioned my book global fracture back in the uh, 1970s uh, and that was right after the vietnam war had forced uh, the united states off gold and uh, saudi arabia had taken ownership of its uh, oil reserves and uh, the U U.S. diplomats already at that time were worrying how to uh, make sure that all the development was uh, U.S.-centered, not foreign-centered. Uh, they were in the dark about how to uh, navigate. And uh, ironic as it might seem, uh, I was hired by uh, Herman Kahn at the Hudson Institute 
uh, to uh, go to the State Department and the White House and the Defense Department to explain how super-imperialism worked. Uh, and the largest uh, purchase of my book, uh, 2,000 copies were bought by the CIA. CIA, I was told, is a, a uh, operations manual uh, for uh, how to do it. Uh, and the United States uh, thought that, well, if we can continue uh, to uh, make other countries keep their savings in uh, the United States uh, by in buying U.S. Treasury bills, if we can tell Saudi Arabia and the oil countries that uh, they can charge whatever they want for their oil if uh, they quadruple the price of oil, but they have to keep all of their earnings in the United States in the U.S. stock market. They cannot buy a major U.S. corporation. The U.S. can buy control of other economies, but no other country's investors uh, can buy control of uh, critical U.S. Uh, industries. Saudi Arabia can buy uh, minority stock holdings. It uh, can buy treasury bills. Uh, the Japanese were allowed to buy golf courses that they lost a uh, billion dollars on. They were able to buy the land under Rockefeller Center uh, that they lost a uh, billion dollars on, but they couldn't really buy uh, American industry. So uh, you had the whole plan for what seemed to be a successful uh, making other countries uh, uh, dependent on the United States and U.S. satellites. Uh, and uh, they're getting very little for their dollars. But the fact is that, that uh, the United States found that uh, it had developed a new kind of imperialism. Uh, it wasn't the old colonial uh, imperialism. Uh, they looked at what uh, happened to Haiti uh, when it bought its uh, independence from France in 1804. Uh, France said, yes, we will give you the independence, but you have to uh, reimburse uh, our uh, military invaders for having conquered you. You have to pay them for uh, the current value of what they took for free when they uh, took you uh, over. And Haiti, for the last 200 years, has been a uh, debt uh, peon of uh, uh, the uh, France and the international financial community. The United States said, we can do the same with other countries. We can make uh, them uh, borrow and base their monetary systems on creating uh, their own credit by US banks, creating their own credit in dollars, and uh, all of the interest payments and the capital gains on all of this will be remitted to the United States. We don't need a military colonialism anymore. We know that we can't have another Vietnam. What we can have is dollar dependency. And uh, that is a system that they put in place. And that is why the, uh, the focus of the talks between China, Russia, uh, Iran, uh, and uh, the global south has been de-dollarization. Uh, and that's what uh, both Radhika and I have been writing about uh, and focusing on for the last few years. Absolutely. And one of the things that also I was reminded by from what you were saying, you know, the United States itself has changed uh, its economic structures very radically over the post-Second World War period. Because if you if I, I remember when I was researching my book, Geopolitical Economy, uh, I came across this quote uh, from a major American official at the end of the Second World War, where he says that what we you know today we account for half of the world's production. And our aim should be to retain that position of relative dominance. That is to say that the United States must continue to account for half of the world's production. So the rest of the world can only grow 
insofar as its growth does not outpace that of the United States. But of course, that is exactly what happened. It was impossible. The, one of the things people forget, you know, uh, even major historians such as Eric Hobsbawm, for example, when you read their books, you know, Age of Extremes, in which he the history of the 20th century, he talks as though, you know, the United States started growing from the late 19th century onwards by the eve of the First World War. It was a really major producer. And so when it came to become such a dominant producer, but the, you know, when it came to account for half the world's economy at the end of the Second World War, this was some kind of a completely natural process. What people entirely forget is that the United States acquired this position of dominance, not through some secular process of growth, but because of the war. During the war, the United States essentially supplied the, essentially grew as the so-called arsenal of democracy. It basically, its economy boomed between 1939 and 1945, US GDP doubled in about six years right this has this was it would not double again for another 22 years even though these were the years of the so called golden age of capitalism when growth was relatively high so you can imagine the sort of boost that the war gave the us economy plus of course if you're talking in relative terms the war is boosting the us economy while it is destroying productive capacity in the rest of the world where the war is actually occurring, where the fighting is actually happening. So it was the complex result of these. So there was nothing natural about the US position of dominance. And to, it, there are a couple of things one can add to this. You know, today, when people are once again celebrating the United States role as the arsenal for, of democracy, people, you know, it's, it's, it's really ironic because the United States, both in the First World War and the Second World War, profited in this manner. Many countries, so-called allies, have only recently finished paying off the war debt, etc. So the United States essentially has been indebting other countries simply by, by posing as an ally when, in fact, it was not an ally. The second thing is that, of course, this also should tell us, give some background to how the U.S. economy has become so reliant on military production, uh, in on on, uh, on armaments production, why the military-industrial complex is such a big part of the U.S. economy. Well, you pointed quite right to the uh, the role of debt in all of this. Uh, the war and during uh, World War II, uh, the United States used its position of supplying arms to the Allies to force uh, the creation of the world uh, two institutions. Uh, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, along lines that were opposed by Europe, but were designed to, uh, number one, break up uh, the British Empire uh, under the Lend-Lease of uh, World War II uh, and under the terms of the International Monetary Fund. They made Britain overprice the pound at, at five pounds per dollar and uh, not uh, promise not to devalue it until 1949. Uh, they also uh, insisted that uh, Britain could not maintain its sterling area. Britain had a sterling area that was much like the dollar area today. Uh, during the war, uh, India and uh, other former colonies had uh, exported raw materials and built up huge government uh, savings uh, uh, in exchange for these raw materials. Uh, and uh, they were, as a sterling area, they were obliged to spend all of these savings 
on British uh, manufacturers. But America said, we want free markets. Free markets means you can spend your money anywhere. Uh, they broke open the uh, British sterling area and said you can buy goods anywhere, meaning from the United States, because uh, uh, with Britain uh, being uh, committed to an overpriced uh, pound sterling and the United States having the industrial capacity, uh, the United States ended up with all of these savings that the British Empire had accumulated. Uh, and uh, the United States had, uh, under uh, Franklin Roosevelt, signaled uh, 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 Britain is uh, America's number one rival. That Britain was in the position that China uh, is uh, in today. Uh, so uh, the empire was broken up uh, and uh, basically forced into uh, debt uh, in the balance of payments because Britain could no longer earn uh, its way to dominate uh, the sterling area by exporting. It was on the road to deindustrialization. Well, meanwhile, the second thing uh, that is important is that the United States emerged from the war, like other countries, with almost no domestic debt at all. The Depression had wiped out domestic uh, lend personal lending, corporate lending. Uh, there was nothing to buy during World War II in the civilian economy because uh, it was war production. So there was hardly any debt. So since World War II, uh, every uh, recovery, there, there's been a business cycle. Uh, in America, Europe, uh, all over the world. Every business cycle recovery has started from a larger and larger uh, uh, proportion of debt to uh, GDP, a larger proportion of personal debt to personal income uh, and uh, uh, corporate debt to corporate income. Uh, this is uh, what has essentially made uh, America having to spend so much money on domestic debt service that uh, neither its labor can uh, compete with other countries if you have to pay mortgage debt uh, and uh, personal debt and credit card debt. Uh, but American industry is debt ridden. So uh, if, if, suppose now you're China, Russia, and the global south. How can they develop their economies in a way that does not simply replicate uh, the American debt overhead. How can China develop its real estate without uh, following the American uh, real estate that uh, what people thought was uh, increasing middle-class wealth by uh, the price of housing going up and up, all of a sudden uh, you're house poor. You're spending so much money on your mortgage that you don't have enough money to buy goods and services. How are uh, China, Russia, the global south, going to create an alternative economic system that doesn't simply replicate uh, what the United States has done uh, since World War II? And how are they going to create, to help this, uh, an alternative to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund that is quite different and different principles? That's and what that, doing. And that, that brings us to another theme that Michael and I have both collaborated on and written independently about, which is really what should the structures of finance ideally be? And uh, when Michael poses all these questions, you know, how can China organize its, uh, its financial sector and its economy in such a way as to promote production without creating these debt overhangs, et cetera, et cetera. In one sense, of course, these are always new questions because economic circumstances change. But on, in another way, we have models going back at least a century, a century and a half, etc. That is to say that in their own industrialization, major industrial countries, 
countries, including the United States, Germany, Japan, China today, they have all had financial uh, sectors in the period of their most rapid development. So for the United States, we're talking about the 19th and early 20th centuries. In this period, they had a very different model of finance. In this model of finance, it was the financial sector was structured in such a way as to aid production. Finance was the handmaiden of production. Finance facilitated long-term investment in productive capacity. Finance did not focus on consumer lending and so on. In fact, there was hardly any consumer lending. So uh, in all of these ways, finance has actually powered the development of these countries. And as I say, finance was subordinated to production. By contrast, back in the 19th and uh, 20th, throughout the from the beginning, essentially, Britain has always had a very different financial model, which ironically for the home of the first industrial revolution actually was not geared to promoting production. It was rather geared to short-term credit for commercial purposes, eventually for speculative purposes, and so on. So this short-term financial model, which was originally British, but now has also been adopted by the United States through a creeping process of financial deregulation that began in the 1970s and 80s and reached a peak in the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 under the supervision of none other than the so-called maestro Alan Greenspan. I'm sure we will have an episode discussing the role of central banking as well. But anyway, so, so, so this model of finance, which the United States has adopted over the last many decades, is actually the opposite of the sort of financial structures that you need. You need financial structures that are going to aid production, whereas these financial structures actually strangle production. These financial structures actually create the economic inequality, which we have seen scaling new heights and during and, 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 the, and the, the opposition of the interest of finance and production is so great that we saw, for example, uh, during the pandemic over the last two or three years, while the economy was tanking, stock markets were doing nothing but scale new heights and increase the wealth of those with the greatest number of financial assets. So this contrasting models of finance, historically and today, uh, will be another theme that Michael and I will be addressing. Well, what's so remarkable is that the point that Radek has just made was well understood uh, in 1914. Uh, after uh, World War I broke out, the British press began to write articles about how they thought that they probably were going to lose World War I because of British banking. They said uh, Germany has a great advantage over the United States. In Germany, uh, the banking is for long term. There's a, a three-way... Uh, triangle between the German government, the banks, and the large corporations, especially the uh, uh, steel-making uh, heavy industry uh, for the military. And uh, there was a belief that uh, German industrial banking had somehow, they'd been able to industrialize uh, the banking that in England still was in the post-feudal uh, system. Uh, it, it, it was short-term banking. Uh, the financial time frame was only short-term. And the, and the British stock market especially was uh, hit and run. Uh, it was like uh, brokerage in the United States today. 
they'd put clients into a stock, uh, they'd uh, pump and dump. That was the, the British way of making uh, money. But uh, uh, when the British were taking, uh, were creating the industrial corporations, uh, they were run by financial managers, just like has happened in the United States with General Electric and uh, other uh, uh, financialized firms. They uh, they didn't take their profits and reinvest in new industrial capital formation. They paid them out in dividends instead of uh, industrial engineering. They had financial engineering. And uh, the result was uh, that uh, finance in Britain was predatory. All of this was understood, and it was believed that after, somehow in the aftermath of World War I, you were going to have uh, what Marx had described in volume three of Capital, uh, that uh, finance was going to be uh, industrialized. And Marx said one of the, the, the revolutionary role of industrial capitalism was to get rid of the landlord class and make uh, 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 land rent and natural resource rent part of the public uh, uh, domain uh, and not uh, for private absentee owners. And to uh, get rid of predatory finance, English style, and replace it with uh, productive finance. And uh, he believed that uh, this would lead naturally into socialism with the banks being, uh, if anything, uh, the model of socialist planning uh, and government planning for the economy. Uh, and that was actually what was happening in Germany under the Reichsbank. I described this in my book, uh, Killing the Host. And uh, instead, what happened was with America's victory, you had the Anglo-American financialization policy that, uh, as you know, brought on uh, the 1929 stock market crash and the 1931 uh, debt cancellation uh, of inter-allied debts and German reparations. So they, they, there were two uh, opposing financial systems. And what Radica is saying uh, uh, that the global, uh, global South and China and Russia are doing today is finally a recognition and a replay of this same uh, debate between finance capitalism and uh, industri industrial uh, socialism uh, that you had a century ago. Yeah, and there's another point worth making in connection with the history that you were recalling, Michael. So, you know, in the United States, you know, like I said, in the uh, late 19th and uh, into the early 20th century, you had very different banking structures. And then, yes, as Michael said, uh, you know, uh, in the 20s, particularly, the financial structure sort of began to evolve towards this British style predatory short term. Of course, you also had an enormous boom in consumer lending in the United States in the 1920s. These were the roaring 20s as we remember them. And a large part of what made them roar was a, a, a debt fuel consumption in the United States. But anyway, so there was that brief period. But then you got the 1929 crash, you got the Great Depression, and you got the Depression-era banking legislation, Glass-Steagall chief among them, which really made American banking, U.S. banking, among the most regulated banking sectors in the world. Uh, because you had, uh, you know, a, a, a system of essentially state regulation of banks, uh, very uh, and a sharp distinction between banks that uh, that were commercial banks that took the uh, deposits of ordinary customers like you and me, and enjoyed federal deposit insurance, which was the new institution that was created by this banking era depression era banking legislation. So if you enjoyed federal deposit insurance. 
uh, it, that which it basically allowed ordinary depositors like you and me to have trust that you know if you if we put a few thousand dollars in the bank or even uh, yeah that that we, it would not disappear if the bank went bust but can, uh, banks that enjoyed this deposit insurance were heavily regulated in terms of how much they could lend at what interest rate they could lend what purposes they could lend for and they were forbidden from speculating in financial markets uh, whereas banks that did so, banks that speculated in financial markets, the so-called investment banks, were not given federal deposit insurance. This meant, and this structure of U.S. Uh, uh, banking, which allowed uh, U.S. banks to play a positive role in the economy, continued, like I was saying, into the 1970s. And it was then, particularly after the dollar's gold link was broken, and it became gradually clear that expanding dollar-denominated financial activity would be able to counteract the Triffin Dilemma to a considerable extent, that's when the financialization really took off. So you saw vast increases in financial activity in terms of uh, government borrowing, in terms of lending to third world countries, eventually the stock market bubble, the dot-com bubble, the East Asian financial bubble, and finally, the, of course, the mother of all bubbles, uh, which we which broke in, in, in 2008, the housing and credit bubbles. And of course, now we are said, you know, not, nothing has been done in all of these decades, despite repeated financial crises to regulate American banking structures or very little has been done. And as a consequence, we today have even bigger and even bigger so-called everything bubble, anything that remotely smacks of any lucrativeness is an asset to be acquired. So, so this very so the United States has undergone quite a transition, and this is important to remember as well. And uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll let Michael have a say if he wants to add anything. Well, what uh, the implication of what you're saying is? What are other countries going to do to avoid the same problem? Uh, because many other countries have uh, followed uh, the U.S. Uh, bank philosophy. Uh, the, what we've been discussing is not at the center of uh, uh, economic discussion, either here uh, or abroad. Well, uh, what has made China so uh, successful and what is so unique and about Chinese socialism is they have uh, treated money creation, banking, and credit as a public utility. That means that uh, if the United States cannot really cure the uh, debt bubble that uh, it's built up, as, as you point out, since over the really since the 1980s, uh, because if it uh, writes down the debt, there will be huge defaults. And uh, in 19 uh, in 2008, uh, the head of the FDIC uh, said that uh, Citibank uh, was the most uh, corrupt. Uh, bank, an incompetent bank in the country. It had, it was in negative equity. It had wiped out the entire stockholder wealth. Uh, but fortunately, uh, President Obama uh, had appointed a Treasury Secretary uh, who was uh, uh, worked for Obama's sponsor, uh, Rubin, uh, is... Uh, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, uh, essentially. And uh, Obama was uh, the uh, political lobby of Citibank. They bailed out Citibank instead of letting it go under, instead of letting it go under and turning it into a government bank to actually loan money for productive reasons. Uh, the uh, 
Obama sponsored the uh, super financialization of the United States and uh, create, since uh, 2008 has created $9 trillion in subsidy to the financial sector to, that has used this $9 trillion to buy control of the industrial sector, to financialize uh, corporations, to definancialize them. Uh, and essentially, it's the financial sector that has uh, destroyed uh, and helped destroy industry in the United States. Well, China uh, is not in this position. It doesn't uh, have a powerful financial interest to take over the government, just the opposite. Uh, China has a very large uh, corporate debt now, and especially a real estate debt. Uh, when uh, its corporations uh, get insolvent, uh, China does not say, well, we're going to break you up and you'll have to be sold uh, to foreign buyers or anyone who can buy it by them. China simply writes down the debt. And it's easy for it to write down the debt because it's writing down debt this owed to itself. Uh, it's, there is no uh, private bank to say uh, to fight it and uh, to lobby against it. Uh, the, the same situation occurs in uh, Chinese real estate right now. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, complaints in China that factories, families have to go into uh, long-term debt in order to borrow the money to buy uh, the, uh, their housing because their housing has been bid up like the United States, on credit. How can China uh, lower the price of housing to keep its uh, labor force uh, with low housing overhead so that it can remain competitive and uh, so that it can use labor's income to buy the goods and services that uh, labor produces instead of paying uh, the banks? What Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, these contrasts that you're drawing, Michael, between Chinese financial structures and what American financial structures have become over the last several decades, this is very pertinent for talking about de-dollarization on the one hand and the rise of the renminbi or the yuan, whatever Chinese currency has two different names, but the Chinese currency as a major world currency. Now, there are a couple of things that one should say about this. First of all, uh, as far as the dollar de-dollarization de is concerned, the fact of the matter is that this is happening because the rest of the world is increasingly becoming aware that participating in the dollar financial system has many disadvantages, including the tendency of the dollar system to occur, incur increasing uh, financial crises and so on. But in addition, there is another point one must make, which is that the dollar system, which is uh, which rests on the structures of financialization, have been strangling the American economy. They have been making the American economy less productive. They have been increasing social inequality in the United States. So, and and of course, all of this has also had repercussions for politics. But of course. Um, the way American politics works, you know, it's the best democracy money can buy. So essentially, the extremely wealthy interests, which are also those interests that have an interest in financialization, are keeping the system going, even though it is having these bad effects on the American population. And even though the dollar system is actually decreasingly attractive to the rest of the world, and therefore, uh, we are going to see its demise very soon. So 
these interests are keeping it going. By contrast, in China, what you have, people say that, you know, the Chinese yuan must be, you know, will internationalize in the same way as the dollar. And this is where they're making a mistake. Yes, there will be increasing use of the Chinese yuan in international trade. But also you are seeing that the new structures that are emerging are not just about yuan domination. On the contrary, China is signing more and more agreements to trade with other countries in their currencies. So it will also enable the currencies of, say, Iran or India or what have you to become used in a re limited, regulated way, nevertheless, but nevertheless used in international trade. But this will be about trade. If so long as you don't have a vast investment in the Ameri in the financial bubbles regularly blown up by the American financial system, you don't need the dollar system, basically. So the yuan will be internationalized in an extremely different way. It will not look the same as the dollar as dollar internationalization has looked over the last many decades, reliant on financialization. So China will we will see that, but it will look very different. That's what. That's the clarification that must be made. Well, the question is, how are they going to create a uh, international bank to uh, uh, oversee uh, international reserves that do not uh, uh, really contain uh, the dollar, except perhaps some dollars for uh, foreign exchange stabilization? Certainly, the first step is going to be uh, bilateral and multilateral currency swaps. Uh, China will hold uh, Saudi Arabian uh, currency and Saudi Arabia. Uh, will hold Chinese yen, and that you'll the result will be the petro yen that people have talked about. Uh, the members of the uh, sort of uh, Chinese uh, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the the allies of China, Russia, Iran are going to uh, develop mutual currency swaps, and at some point they will uh, join together and create an international bank that will be able to create credit to finance the uh, huge investment in uh, infrastructure, in port development, in transportation that we're so far seeing uh, China take the lead in developing along the uh, old Silk Road uh, and the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Uh, this is going to be coordinated by uh, an uh, international bank so that they can essentially have their economy uh, without much contact uh, with uh, the dollar and the euro uh, because the dollar and euro have very little to offer uh, in e uh, uh, not raw materials, not really much uh, technology. Uh, they can make uh, specialized machinery for producing uh, computer chips. Uh, but basically, uh, it requires a whole institutional uh, development. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that's what they're discussing right now. And uh, this is going to be unfolding in future uh, programs that we'll be discussing. Exactly. I think it's, you know, we're, we're nearly at one hour, Michael. So let's maybe wind down this conversation, but maybe I'll wind it down by underlining something that you and I argued in our in our article beyond the dollar creditocracy, which is that, you know, there are two ways in which the, the, essentially the dollar system has 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 operated on two sort of legs in a or, or say operated with a carrot and a stick. So the carrot has, of course, been the vast financialization bubbles that the United States has blown up regularly in order to invite the rest of the world to buy dollar denominated assets and thereby increase demand for dollars. 
and that also, of course, has uh, uh, been running into in increasing contradictions to such an extent that today, Michael mentioned earlier the uh, uh, Federal Reserve's expanded balance sheet. You know, it went from about, you know, one trillion in the early part of this century, the early years of this century, to about two trillion, and then four trillion after the 2008 financial crisis, and now it is over nine trillion dollars. Bulk of this money is there because essentially foreigners are not crowding into American asset markets to buy dollar denominated assets. So those asset markets have to be supported by the Federal Reserve. And and, and so this is a really uh, so 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 and and of course eventually the Federal Reserve uh, I mean, it can become a sort of self-contained system in which the Federal Reserve continues to inflate the wealth of some Americans, but the rest of the world is decreasingly interested in it. The other, the stick, has of course been control over commodities. Michael mentioned control over oil. Uh, of course, today, many other commodities are also becoming important. Food, of course, is becoming important. Various uh, resources connected with um, the production of various green technologies like lithium is becoming important. So there will be a big uh, attempt to control this. But American attempts to try to keep control over oil has also been slipping over the last many decades. Oil prices uh, take a, a, a turn of their own. And of course, as commodity prices go up, the value of the dollar falls. And so this is another, and, and essentially the reason why commodity prices are going up is because the rest of the world is demanding more because the rest of the world is also developing. And so the development of the rest of the world itself is going to have a negative effect on uh, American attempts to retain purchase. Uh, so the sooner America, the United States realizes the folly of trying to dominate the world and focuses on being a productive national economy, the better it will be for Americans themselves, because Americans have also paid a big price. The world has paid a big price, but so in a lesser way, Americans have paid a big price for U.S.'s vain attempts to try to retain dominance over the world, even if it is only by keeping the dollar as the world's money. Radhika, we could have charged, uh, got a million dollars from the State Department by uh, keeping this to ourselves and uh, uh, just telling them how the world works. Well, uh, I hope instead that we get a million viewers. I think this would be far more rewarding for us. So uh, please watch out for our next uh, show, which will be on the 20, which we will uh, uh, record in, in two weeks' time, and you will see in two weeks' time. Meanwhile, please also give us your, uh, your reactions, your suggestions for topics we might cover. We'll try to do that as much as we can, and we look forward to talking with you every fortnight uh, from here on. So thanks very much and uh, look, see you next time. Bye-bye.